Inside the Post-Dispatch. Welcome to another episode of Inside the Post-Dispatch. I'm Liz Miller, and here with me is Beth O'Malley. Hi, everybody. Thank you for listening. We are both very excited. We're always very excited for our guest. <laughs> but, but this week, we're going to be talking about county politics. It's a Tuesday, and there is an election tonight, so we may have to revisit at least one of these topics. But the main one we're going to address is um, the county executive race that's shaping up. Um, Nassim, if you could introduce yourself, that would be wonderful. Yes, hi, my name is Nassim Meshaben. I'm uh, the St. Louis County um, government and politics reporter here at the Post-Dispatch. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, welcome, Thank you Nassim. for having me. Tell us a little bit about the candidates who are running. Uh, filing closed last week. And so we know who's running for county executive in St. Louis County. Uh, there's a race on the Republican and the Democrat side. Tell us a little bit more about those candidates, please. Yes, of course. Um, so we have the incumbent, County Executive Sam Page, who's running for re-election to a full uh, four-year term. Uh, this would be the second election he's in to um, fill the office. Obviously, he was uh, selected by the council to uh, fill the term that was vacated by Steve Stanger, um, and then won uh, election to complete uh, that term in 2020. So now he's running for uh, second uh, election, but for a full four-year term. Um, and he will be facing probably one of the strongest Republican challenges um, that the party has mounted for the county executive seat in a while uh, in Representative Shamed Dogan, mm-hmm. um, who is a former Baldwin alderman uh, representative in the state legislature since 2015. Um, he's looking to sort of build a coalition among Republican voters in the county as well as um, black voters in, in North St. Louis County, which is a heavily Democratic area. But mm-hmm. um, he's got some pretty strong fundraising. Um, and he'll, bets are on him to be the um, likely GOP uh, nominee. Mm-hmm. Um, he'll be facing uh, a challenger, um, as well as Page will be in the primary in August. Um, his challenger is someone whose name is pretty well known in local politics, uh, Jane Duker. She's an attorney and a lobbyist, um, most recently known for representing the uh, St. Louis and St. Louis County Police Officers Associations. Mm-hmm. She is a vocal critic of the county executive and someone who's very familiar with county politics. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, She had been an advisor to um, Stanger, um, obviously is involved um, in police issues, um, you know, is very uh, critical also of uh, officials in St. Louis. Um, So she's got a name for herself, and um, she's hoping to mount a challenge to county executive page. Um, It'll be interesting to see what happens, though, because as a lobbyist, she can't necessarily fundraise uh, on her own with her own campaign account. Okay. Um, whereas Paige is, has a pretty big war chest, um, but she's said she's going to mount a strong challenge, and she certainly has uh, a lot of criticisms in her back pocket that she'll be able to bring out. And she and Sam Page, Jane Duker and Sam Page, are both running as Democrats, um, and Chmed Dogan has an opponent as well. Yes, Catherine Pinner. Um, okay. Relatively unknown, I think, in, in politics. Mm-hmm. Um, tried to reach her for a, at the time when um, she filed. Um, but uh, I believe she has some kind of background in, in publishing. Um, she's a South County resident. Mm-hmm. Um, so new to the political scene. But, you know, with a Republican nomination, it's hard to say that she'd be able to overcome uh, Representative Dogan's mm-hmm. uh, name recognition and right. background in politics and government. Uh, but she'll be... 
uh, facing him in the August primary. And I'm sure that we'll learn more about all of the candidates as your coverage continues. Yes, filing just closed last week. Right. Um, so some of these names and faces are still relatively new, having just uh, filed their candidacy and don't even necessarily, in some cases, have campaign websites up or anything right. like that. When is the primary election? In August. Okay. So there's a little bit of time for all of the drama to unfold. Yes, we're looking at a, a pretty active summer, I think, for, <laughs> for some of these campaigns. Yeah. Go ahead, Beth. No, I was going to say, speaking of drama, what are some of the campaign issues that we're likely to hear about? Well, um, I think COVID, of course, and the county's uh, response to the pandemic uh, will continue to be at the forefront. This isn't a new issue. Um, it was one that was... Uh, certainly a hot button topic uh, in 2020 uh, when Page was uh, mm -hmm. running for election to complete the term vacated by Stanger. Um, we will see that return. Um, there are questions as to what kind of dynamics will be at play. Um, you know, we're now, what, two and a half years on into the pandemic. Um, numbers have dwindled. Vaccinations are up. Um, you know, the county's mask mandate, which was a, a very contentious um, issue for, for certain folks, that's now gone. Mm -hmm. um, so whether criticism that the county has been um, too uh, restrictive uh, in their protective measures, whether that kind of criticism will still stand now while COVID is sort of less on people's minds remains to be seen. Um, I think we'll also see a lot of discussion about an issue that's on the ballot today, uh, which is the county executive uh, part-time work as an anesthesiologist. Um, the county charter, um, you know, has a provision that says that, uh, I, I don't want to read it out uh, word by word, but <laughs> that the uh, county executive's entire time shall be devoted to the office. Mm -hmm. um, so some of Page's political opponents, Councilman Tim Fitch, Councilman Mark Carter, Republicans who represent uh, parts of West County, uh, have said that Page is violating that provision by working um, part-time as an anesthesiologist. Um, Page. I'm, I'm sorry, that provision on the county charter has no teeth behind it. Like there's nothing that says no job or you step down type of thing. And that's what people are voting on. It, it does outline a um, provision that um, that the county executive would forfeit the office oh, okay. uh, for violation. Now, the enforcement mechanism for that uh, could possibly uh, be open to some legal interpretation or legal wrangling, but okay. it does outline a consequence. Uh, for it. Oh. Um, and it does specifically state that there will be no secondary employment. Um, so not just that the entire time of the county executive shall be devoted to the office, but specifically that there shall be no secondary employment. Gotcha. Oh, okay. Yeah. Going off of that, I have a question. So do you know what are some of the more recent term limits for county executives? Because I think when I think of that, challenge about that second part-time job if this is a position you're only going to hold for say four years then to lose your medical license to non-activity is very different than a job you might hold for 10 or 12 years well um county executives looking back um you know in history have generally served for a pretty long time um you know three of the uh, county executives um, gene mcnary buzz westfall charlie dooley all served uh, multiple terms uh, for about 12 years each, I, I believe, um, looking back. And so generally, the executives have enjoyed that kind of uh, long um, tenure uh, in office. Um, I think a lot of political scientists will talk about the uh, advantage that being an incumbent has in an election naturally. Mm -hmm. Your name is known. Um, and barring, um, you know, a sort of super scandal 
um, it's rare for a, a voter to to really um, be passionate flip. enough to yeah <laughs> to to flip you out of office. So generally, executives do serve a long time, yeah. but they get paid. They are paid. Okay. Um, the county executive salary is $140,000. So they are paid uh, for the work. And that's the question that, um, you know, is kind of alluded to in the ballot proposition is whether this uh, executive's job is a quote unquote full time uh, role. Um, I don't think that uh, the county executive has disputed uh, that the job is full time, mm-hmm. um, but his campaign, you know, has said that he devotes his full time to the office. You know, that he shows up for the job. He's never missed a phone call or a meeting or any kind of issue for uh, his work as an anesthesiologist. Um, so he says that he does serve full-time. Now his opponents, um, uh, Representative Dogan, um, Stuker, uh, have both said that they intend to sol- that they intend to serve full-time as legislators, as executives, uh, without holding any kind of secondary work. Um, so that would mean that on weekends and weeknights, they, they wouldn't work. And Page has been facing lots of questions from other council members about his outside employment. He so far hasn't said how many hours he works as an anesthesiologist. Is that no? He's declined to detail those uh, hours and that information even to reporters and, and to news media. And so a council majority of uh, uh, Mr. Harder, and Mr. Fitch, mm-hmm. uh, Democrats, uh, Rita Days, and Shalonda Webb, uh, they have even tried to subpoena. Uh, mm. Mercy Hospital and Western Anesthesiology, where Page practices for those records. Um, that litigation has been ongoing. Mm-hmm. Um, Page has said in the past that he's only ever worked uh, a few hours on, on a weekend or on a weeknight um, and infrequently. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the extent to which he's detailed uh, those hours. And obviously, compensation, he's uh, been pretty firmly uh, pushing back against the council for seeking that information, saying it's uh, quote-unquote, not of their uh, concern. Right, and I can kind of understand on the compensation side that doesn't seem to be the main issue with the charter, at least saying full-time county executive. But I guess has Page outlined why he doesn't want to release or has not released this information about how many hours he works? Well, he's um, essentially told the council that it's not their concern and chalked it up to politics. Um, you know, there's even a fundraising uh, email that had come out, uh, I think, at the late last year. I can't remember the exact date, but we, we mm-hmm. did report on it. Um, you know, they kind of referred to uh, the council's inquiry as, uh, quote, Trump-style politics, um, mm-hmm. saying that, you know, his medical work is something that um, doesn't necessarily pose a conflict of interest for his public role. Now, his critics would disagree. Um, And another question I had had is, I'm guessing that maybe one of the reasons that he has maintained this, be it small or not, amount of hours is to maintain his medical license. But again, I think when we talk about in recent memory, having county executives serve for 10 years, 12 years, that those are people who had to put their careers prior to those positions, whether it be lawyers, prosecutors, what have you on hold, and it's maybe not asking a lot for someone who would, would want to have that heavy mantle to do the same, even in an industry where there's not a conflict of interest. Certainly, yeah. I mean, that's that's the argument that you know, as critics present as, I guess, in, in shorter words, why you know, have this <laughs> secondary work? I mean, you are the executive, you know, you wanted this office, uh, you were elected for this role. 
um, why do you need to keep performing this work? And there, there is an argument also that, you know, the loss of the license would be temporary if um, mm-hmm. the executive were to no longer be the executive and return to uh, his private career that he could then reapply and then be licensed once again. And Page was initially appointed to the position, but then ran in 2020. Was yes. this an issue during that election? Was this something that his opponent raised at that time? Yes, actually, um, the councilman uh, Fitch and uh, Mr. Harder did raise that okay. um, issue just before uh, the election. Actually, I think it may have been just uh, one or two days, um, if I recall the details, which I, I may be incorrect on. But it was shortly before the election. Um, so we didn't see as lengthy of mm-hmm. a debate mm-hmm. about it. The council at that time did not have a, a majority that would have voted to subpoena, for example, the records. Right. That only happened the next year um, okay. when um, uh, the council seat changed. Um, and so we didn't see as, as fierce, I guess, uh, a discussion about it. But it had come up before. And one of the things that you mentioned, to move on just a little bit from campaign issues, was the masking and uh, handling of the pandemic as a campaign issue. I know that the comments during some of the county council meetings were really very, very critical of county council members. Um, I, I did several videos and watched them, and I know that you sat through them in the room. And some of them were even critical of the Post-Dispatch and you specifically. And you weren't on video, so I couldn't tell. Um, did you have to keep a poker face during those? Well, I I personally wear a mask okay. um, in <laughs> meetings. Helps with the poker face. <laughs> so that, that certainly does help with the poker face. Um, but I, I didn't feel that I, I had to keep a poker face. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I understood um, those comments to be... Um, you know, uh, an opinion that they they held about mask mandates and and the validity of mask mandates. And, you know, I I reported, um, you know, comments that that they had provided. I mean, these are uh, members of the public who had an opinion that they wish to express. Um, While at times, you know, some of the tone and candor could be uh, pretty intense. Um, You know, I I never took an issue with it personally um, and tried to actually understand that, you know, this was coming from a place of frustration, maybe not necessarily from the same vantage point that, uh, for example, people who are much more supportive of of mask mandates are. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, you know, mask mandates were supported by physicians and medical experts. And I always try to, you know, include um, that science and that grounding um, in each of those stories. And, you know, people are free to disagree with those opinions. And I can understand that sometimes their frustration was coming out of a place that maybe was a, a general frustration with the pandemic and its mm-hmm. effects on society at large. I mean, these last two years certainly weren't easy on anyone. Right. Um, and, you know, if you disagreed with, you know, for example, occupancy limits or um, limits, uh, curfews on businesses, um, that's a that's a real source of frustration. And the you know kind of psychological toll of that uh, wasn't easy on anyone. Um, so when it came to me personally, you know, my name mentioned or the names of some of my colleagues, mm-hmm. um, you know, I tried not to take those personally. And um, I always, you know, tried to engage with, with folks, um, you know, if they wanted to talk, I would, you know, ask about, you know, where their um, comments were coming from, you know, how they felt about things. Um, I think one thing that maybe uh, people uh, 
didn't understand, and this might be um, too much information, but the <laughs> county council meetings actually run up pretty close to my deadline right. uh, for, for print. Yeah. Um, and so oftentimes I'm kind of writing as the meeting is going on and then having to uh, turn in a story pretty shortly afterwards. So, right. uh, you know, I, they may have seen me kind of leave a, a meeting, um, you know, just after it ended, but uh, I always try to um, be open to, you know, any kind of criticism that they wanted to share, even of my reporting or other stories of the paper. I think it's just part of the job to be open and and, and talking with, with folks. Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned deadline. I know some county council meetings would go pretty long. Um, they start in the evening. And when would, would the print deadline be for some of those meetings? Well, um, I mean, my editor will start asking me for the story, you know, <laughs> shortly before 9 p.m. Right. Um, and, you know, any, any later than that is starting to... Um, kind of push uh, the buttons for, you know, for the folks who need to be able to lay out the, the paper and yeah. design and everything. Um, so it, it's a pretty quick turnaround. Um, you know, I think it's a little bit of inside baseball, I think, for, for folks who are really curious about how the <laughs> no, sausage is made. That's but, why we're yeah. doing, well, that's what we call it, inside the post-dispatch. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> so as, as a reporter, you try to, you know, stay on top of the agenda items that the council will be discussing, talk to council members ahead of time about mm-hmm. Um, you know, what bills they're considering asking for votes on. They're always surprises. Um, you can't predict, um, you know, certainly what uh, members of the public might bring up or, um, you know, events that happen, you know, during the meeting. Um, so you try to um, stay in touch and, and just keep abreast of, you know, the latest developments. And then, um, you know, at times the, the way the meetings are formatted, they often don't vote on bills until the latter half. So it does kind of bring you close to deadline but that's kind of the thrill sometimes too of, of being a reporter is <laughs> the thrill of covering the, the government in, yeah yeah just at the, the last moment yeah, yeah but that's so valuable i mean for our listeners hopefully you're also subscribers you know that's the work that goes into making sure that when you wake up in the morning whether you're checking our you know the stltoday.com or your physical paper and you're catching up on on the night's news that's the work it takes to get it there right and it it has a limited cycle so it's really really important that you're filing that as soon as possible and that it does make it in print and online at basically asap yeah, and, and, you know, oftentimes there'll be issues that I'll return to, uh, you know, as early mm-hmm. as the, the next few hours the next day. Um, and I always encourage, you know, folks to, to, to reach out, you know, if there was something at the meeting that um, they didn't see maybe necessarily in the story covering that meeting that mm-hmm. night um, that, um, you know, we'll be, we'll be covering it the next day. And then oftentimes it allows for a sort of deeper look. Uh, for example, if a bill was given a first round approval, um, then you can kind of step back and do some meeting, you know, interviews after the fact and kind of really dig into um, what this legislation means and um, what impacts it might have. Yeah, the longer form stuff you have to hold, that's not going to make it into the night edition. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's great. Uh, and I'd love to learn a little bit about your history, you know, with the Post, before the Post, and your work with your editor, Roland Close, uh, who covers politics and myriad of other fun joys of the paper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I started at the paper, I think, in mid-2016 as uh, what you'd call the night cops reporter. Um, so I was working at the uh, latest shift, um, um, you know, into the, I think, around midnight, 1 a.m. Um, hour, sometimes later, depending on what was happening, um, covering mostly crime, mm-hmm. shootings, um, things of that nature. Um, a lot of people, uh, you know, a lot of print legacy journalists will describe it as kind of the you know, the foot in the door where it really teaches you a lot. It's, uh, um, you know, listening to the scanner, <laughs> listening to the police scanners, going out to, um, shooting scenes. And, um, you know, I, 
actually referring back to the podcast episode you did with Brett, mm-hmm. um, you know, you learn to really try to put a focus on, um, you know, the victims and what this means for them, mm-hmm. um, telling a narrative beyond just a, a simple police report, and honestly having to push for a lot more detailed information than you would get from a police report. Um, so that was a great learning experience. And then from then, uh, I became a general assignment reporter um, and ended up covering a whole kind of myriad of things, filling in on um, the Board of Aldermen meetings in the city, oh, um, wow. St. Louis County Council <laughs> meetings, um, some municipal meetings, um, covering the uh, medical marijuana industries that was coming out, um, the airport privatization efforts, some of those after effects, um, uh, sexual abuse within the Catholic Church, including mm-hmm. the uh, release of that list uh, from the archdiocese um, of uh, people who had been accused uh, of mm-hmm. abuse. Yeah. Um, and then um, kind of odds and ends, fun little features that I that I got to do. There was one about, uh, it was the first time that Missouri was opening up um, records for uh, adoptees, oh. um, where adoptees could actually look up their um, their birth records and, mm-hmm. and information about their biological families. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a story I did about a family here in St. Louis who's, uh, this woman, uh, her sister moved out to California and ended up living, actually meeting her nephew, who she was in contact with. Her sister was adopted, had to be given up for adoption. But she actually lived with her nephew in California, and then they wow. ended up reconnecting and um, drawing in another sibling who had been adopted. So uh, that was also a really nice story that sticks out in my memory. I'm from St. Louis as well, and even then, you know, working at the newspaper, you really feel like you get to know my. You you really didn't know you know your city or particularly your region uh, as a region until you kind of work at the the newspaper and really dig into uh, a lot of the history there. Um, so that was really informative. I started covering the county um, just a, a little bit over a year ago in January of 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was, it was really uh, fortunate to be able to kind of bring some of that background, especially filling in on county council meetings previously um, to the role. I wanted to circle back to the salaries for county appointees, which is separate from what we were just talking about with Prop B uh, and the secondary paid work for the executive, but it does involve the executive. Is that right? Yes, it does involve the executive. It is uh, aimed at the executive's office, um, but not necessarily as uh, uh, personal of an issue as we saw with uh, Proposition B. Okay. Um, so this was actually a reform that was suggested by uh, the state auditor, Nicole Galloway, in a 2020 audit of county government. Um, and she noted this as a, it's a longstanding practice that preceded County Executive Page, um, where the county executive would uh, appoint, uh, you know, someone to some form of job um, in a county department. Uh, for example, he's got, um, you know, a, a sort of special liaison working at the at the jail in the Justice mm-hmm. Services Department. So this person isn't necessarily a merit employee who's hired, um, you know, as kind of a normal county government process, but as someone who's appointed mm-hmm. um, to a job and therefore a political appointee. Mm-hmm. But the practice was executives would hire that person and then their salary would be charged to the budget of the department they're working for. Um, and oh, so, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so the reform noted that, uh, or sorry, the audit from Ms. Galloway noted that uh, generally executives had about a million dollars, um, you know, annually in budgets that were kind of disseminated across different departments, mm-hmm. but they were for appointees that the executive had hired. So Councilman Mark Harder took this up. Uh, as a piece of legislation this last year, and it passed the council by a six to one vote. The only opposition uh, was from a council member who said that they felt um, the charter proposition should all be taken up as uh, 
one wholesale piece of legislation. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't want to separate them out into separate measures. Uh, but otherwise, it passed with uh, you know strong majority support. Um, and so this would enact a technical change where the salaries for those appointees would then be listed under the executive's budget. So you could see how many appointees mm-hmm. the executive has made and then what you know, that's costing county taxpayers. And what is the, the practical effect of that beyond the transparency? Does that mean that the county council in debating and approving the budget could cut some of those appointed positions? It certainly makes it easier for them to do that. Yeah. Okay. Um, as far as cut, you know, that, of course, would they would enter uh, into some kind of debate about that. Right. Um, but it makes it at this point, they and, and this is why Councilman Harder had brought it up was that they were questioning how many appointees the executive had, mm-hmm. um, you know, where they were working, how much they cost. You know, for example, uh, one of the appointees was a, a former councilwoman mm-hmm. um, who, you know, at the time her appointment was controversial. Um, so they were trying to, you know, keep track of, to keep track of, you know, what her salary was, if that had changed year to year. Um, so this bill, uh, sorry, this would make it easier for the county council to just see how many people the executive has appointed. And then that could open up some pretty frank discussion about how much uh, they're costing taxpayers and what their jobs are and uh, whether they're needed or what kind of services they're providing. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and forgive me if um, if I heard this wrong, but I'm also wondering if it frees up money back into some of these uh, departments, maybe if this money would have, where would this money come from? I guess one, if it's going to be transferred into sort of an executive appointee fund, does that not mean that then some of those departments could get some of that money back? I mean, that's, that's an interesting point. Uh, I think it, it sort of depends on um, kind of where you, how you view the the county budget. So this does put a lot more pressure on the executive's office Mm -hmm. to then, you know, manage its budget and make sure that it's you know, uh, I guess sort of operating within its means. Uh, and it does relieve pressure on the other departments. Um, but in total, you're talking about, uh, you know, in total, uh, for the executive's office, this is a big change because all of those appointees are then coming back under his office. For example, the auditor mentioned about a million dollars uh, in salaries to appointees that would then be relocated to the county executive. But since these appointees are often spread across the different departments, mm-hmm. for each individual department, it might not be that large of a change. Sure. So okay. you, you might be talking about, you know, $60,000, $80,000, what have you, someone's individual salary that you're then taking out of the budget. So it gives you a little bit more wiggle room, but... It's not a, a game changer necessarily for the departments themselves. Yeah, I guess coming from a journalism industry, I'm like, well, eighty grand seems like that would be quite the infusion. But sure, it, I get it. It does to me. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. My other question on that same um, that same thought was, you know, whether or not or who is setting those salaries. So you had mentioned that obviously these are appointees, so they're not going through the same process that a department that might have a vacancy is then going to fill. Um, and maybe there's some checks and balances within depth that department about salary range, qualifications, that kind of thing. Is all of that being set by the executive's office? And if so, you know, is there any checks and balances with sal- like salaries that we're offering to these appointees? Uh, that is set by the executive's office uh, as an appointee, but the, I mean, the check is the county council. Um, you know, as a legislative body, they do have Confirm. appropriating authority in the budget, um, so they can make budget cuts. Um, you know, there's often a negotiating process um, with the county executive's administration, um, but they do have the authority to make cuts in the budget, and that can include, um, you know, salaries for appointees. 
so they 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 have a a strong say in that, and that's why they wanted this ballot proposal on there was to be able to have that information more clearly and and uh, more readily available. Yeah, and as Beth said, more transparent maybe as well. Certainly, um, Councilman Harder has described it as a, as a big transparency measure. And as a reminder to listeners, we're taping this on Tuesday before the election, and we're going to try to have Nassim come back and, and do a quick recap tomorrow before we post the podcast. But there's a little bit of hesitation and uncertainty <laughs> in, in uh, discussing some of these because we don't know what the results are right now. But we, we don't, will. We will know the results, and they could they could have a factor in the um campaign season Mm -hmm. Uh, for example with proposition b on the county executive second job you know this will be voters weighing in um, and i'm curious to see what would happen if voters don't pass the ballot proposition if they reject it um, whether you know kind of the county executives critics will continue to hone in on a secondary employment um, now that voters essentially said that it it wasn't uh, I guess too much of an issue to them. Yeah. Um, so that that'll be an interesting uh, you know development as well with Proposition B uh, A on the um, appointee salaries. That'll you know without that uh, change, that'll make it harder for the county council to keep track of that kind of information. And so those will have consequences going forward. Definitely. I do want to circle back way back to you said <laughs> Jane Duker was a lobbyist, and so she couldn't do campaign fundraising. She can't open a campaign account. She, under state law. She can benefit from other political action committees spending on her behalf. I mean, she's said that she wants to debate the county executive. So it, it seems that she, you know, wants to bring forward her criticism. And, uh, you know, obviously she has um, some name recognition and, and connections in the area. I mean, she was a former um, chief of staff for a Missouri governor, uh, Bob mm-hmm. Holden, um, longtime lobbyist and attorney. Um, so she may feel that she doesn't need to advertise her campaign. She's very active on social media as well. So maybe she feels that that's a, a surrogate for uh, a big war chest. Yeah. All right. Well, it's interesting, too, you know, obviously the Stanger connection. If there isn't as strong of a perhaps argument to be made against the county executive having a part-time job, uh, I wonder, you know, then if you're a page, do you come at Duker for that connection to Stanger you know, I mean, I think this could get ugly very quickly. Well, as, I mean, his campaign already has in a statement when she filed, referred to her as... Um, oh, right, last week. Steve Stenger's campaign manager, which she was not his campaign manager, but she was uh, an advisor. She's emphasized that she was not paid for that. But she was an advisor to Stenger, um, including helping um, the former executive craft answers uh, about the Northwest Plaza deal. Um, so they, I do expect uh, the county executive's campaign to emphasize those ties that she had. And for listeners who aren't familiar, Stenger, he resigned, if I remember properly, after being indicted and has served time in federal prison for... It's been described as a pay-to-play scheme, corruption charges, where he was um, diverting contracts to campaign donors. So that's quite a loaded history to have in this race coming back up again. Well, and, and that gets to an interesting point about county politics and and. I mean, everything that happened with uh, Stanger was before uh, my time covering uh, the county. Mm-hmm. Um, and with county politics, a lot of it is really based, uh, for example, when you're talking about the county council and the county executive, 
a lot of it's based on each individual council member's relationship and history with the executive mm-hmm. uh, and the administration. So, for example, in the council, you know, you don't see uh, just a consistent stark divide between Republicans and Democrats. You actually mm-hmm. have a, a majority, a bipartisan majority, um, where two Democrats are, have sided with two Republicans generally, um, you know, to be critical of, of the county executive. And then a Republican council member um, is generally more supportive. So with the campaign season with um, you know the county executive and Jane Duker, I do expect them to kind of draw back on a lot of the history and, um, you mm-hmm. know, uh, political fights. Um, I think... I think most uh, political observers would describe Duker as being uh, more of a moderate or center Democrat than than the county executive. But I think we've seen a lot of her criticism focusing more so less on um, some of the social issues, uh, mm. for example, yeah. that uh, you might see a, a divide there between progressives and, and more center Democrats and see Duker actually focusing her criticism more so on, you know, just kind of day to day administrative events in the county, mm-hmm. um, you know, complaints about um, misconduct or, um, you know, how Page has handled, um, for example, the mask mandates, mm-hmm. um, whether he's working with the county council and has maintained a good relationship with them, um, you know, those kind of issues will be, I think, more at the forefront than kind of bread and butter disagreements between the different flanks of the Democratic Party. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Although we, we will see, um, for example, Representative Dogan has already um, tried to tie Page to uh, the defund the police mm-hmm. slogan, um, and with Ms. Duker being a, a, a you know a lobbyist for the police officers associations, I do expect her to you know criticize Page as uh, being less supportive of of law enforcement. Yeah, yeah, it it all politics is local at a certain point. And <laughs> this is a, definitely an example of how sometimes the party affiliation doesn't accurately describe the candidates' viewpoints. So it'll be a really interesting campaign season and that's one reason why we wanted to have you on so thank you so much for appearing today thank you very much for for having me it's been great and we will definitely check in with you tomorrow after the election results and after uh, sam page is given his state of the county is that what we're calling it uh address that's what that's what he's called it okay yeah (laughs) uh and yeah thank you so much and we'll have to have you back as this uh unfolds in the coming months leading up to that august election Thanks. Yeah, there'll be a, a lot to talk about, particularly once you get into some of the county council races and and issues. Thanks for joining us again, Nassim. Really quickly, if you could outline the major results from yesterday's election for that have implications for the county council. Uh, yes, the two ballot proposals that um, deal with the county executive's office uh, both passed by pretty wide margins. Um, you remember the Proposition A, which had to do with the salaries of appointees that the executive makes. Um, that passed by, uh, I think, a, a 53-point margin. So you had 76.7% of voters approved that. Again, that was a recommendation from uh, the state auditor um, that uh, they make this change. It was a longstanding practice for executives to put these salaries in other departments. And so this puts them all back uh, together. And then Proposition B, which uh, has been making the headlines, uh, has to do with secondary employment. That also passed by a pretty wide margin. You had 61.6% of voters 
uh, approve that measure, which again adds teeth to the existing counting charter requiring that an executive devote their full time to the office. Um, so this actually outlines a, a consequence of having to forfeit the office. And today, uh, the county executive spokesman did confirm that uh, the county executive would abide by the charter change. Uh, now, the executive gave an address today, uh, a first for the county, a state of the county address, but did not take questions from reporters afterward. Obviously, most of us were there um, to ask that question first and foremost. Um, and so the county executive has put out a statement that he will abide by the charter change, uh, which does take effect uh, today now that the votes are, are certified. Do you think that that removes the issue of his second job um, as a campaign issue, or does it mean that the other candidates will lean into it a little bit more? No, it's a, it's a good question as to what effect this would have on the campaign, whether this would remain an issue. It, it certainly, you know, explicitly bars any secondary employment. Um, so if the county executive were to somehow try to argue that, you know, there there's a, a loophole or a way for uh, the county executive to continue working part-time as an anesthesiologist, that would certainly flare up tension around it. But I think you'll see his critics still point to that, saying that they had to get to the point where they had to ask voters to weigh in to change the charter to do it. Um, this was a you know longstanding fight with some of his council critics. Um, you know they had uh, made accusations about this as far back as late 2020, just before that election. Um, so they may still try to to paint the issue as one that the uh, county executive was. Um, using to try to flub the charter, and then he had to be forced to take this position uh, rather than, um, I guess, doing it voluntarily. How much weight that'll carry with voters, it's a little bit harder to discern. Uh, if you actually look at the voting results, um, although it was a pretty wide margin, again, it passed with 61.6%, uh, the turnout was pretty low, and all that percentage uh, equates to 71,999 votes, so just below 72,000. And most of the support for the proposition, um, that support was a lot stronger in kind of parts of South and West County, um, which are typically uh, more Republican-leaning areas. Um, the two Republican councilmen who had been uh, the fiercest advocates for the ballot proposition represent those areas, um, whereas um, you know there was less support for adopting the proposition in kind of more um, Democratic areas, particularly in the Central County uh, around Clayton and along the border with the city. So I expect it'll still be discussed, but whether it'll uh, really sway voters, uh, that that's kind of an open-ended question. It seems obvious yeah. now that he'll have to make a decision on that. And then if, you know, even if he does, Duker could still come after him pretty heavily to say like the electorate has spoken and maybe this wasn't previously a concern of theirs, but it certainly is now as leverage against Page. Yeah, I think you'll certainly um, see his opponents, you know, bring it up and, and continue to do so. I think it's a reasonable inference that, you know, this was a municipal election, fairly low turnout. And so I do think a lot of the turnout that you did see were folks who were, you know, engaged on this issue or had been paying attention to it. And so had a strong opinion either way. Um, and then I do think that you also, you know, I think it's a reasonable inference um, that some voters who maybe weren't as familiar with it or didn't know that it was aimed at county executive or, or knew what uh, the county executive's second job was, that they saw that language on the ballot proposition saying simply, because again, the 
proposition doesn't mention, um, you know, Sam Page or what his job is. It just says, should the county executive be barred from any secondary employment while in office? And I think to voters who aren't familiar with who the executive is, or maybe weren't following that fight with the council, that seems like a, you know, fairly straightforward question and maybe a reasonable one. You know, they consider it a public office and they may question why, why that person should have a second job. So that's all to say that, you know, while it's there, there certainly are a lot of residents who felt strongly and showed that yesterday. I don't know that it will translate to a, um, you know, critical issue uh, in the election for a broader swath of voters in the county. Critics, um, you know, blasted him for uh, not talking about it publicly since. Um, so his campaign, you know, did oppose both of the ballot proposals, even though the executive himself in public remarks was more kind of restrained. But even his decision, you know, not to meet with reporters after the address today, you know, got some blowback from uh, from some of his uh, opponents. Did he address either of those ballot issues during his remarks? No, he did not. All right. Well, we'll have to stay tuned and see how the rest of the campaign goes. I know that Nassim will be covering it and will be publishing stories in the Post-Dispatch and on stltoday.com. So thank you for rejoining us today on Wednesday. And thank you to all the listeners. Thanks. It was a, it was a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks so much, Nassim. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody.